0: Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. We're in the last paragraph of this section, and I've entitled this series, which will be more than a sermon today. It'll take us a couple to get through. A wake-up call from God. Romans chapter 13. Let me read this just to refresh your minds on this text. Romans 13, verse 11. Paul says, Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Do you ever have trouble waking up and getting out of bed in the morning? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you consider yourself morning people. You just hop out of bed, you're singing songs, you're making bird chirping sounds, and you just love the morning, and you never are ever tempted to sleep in at all. If that's you, you can disciple the rest of us. Let me ask you another question. Is there a difference... And how you feel when the alarm goes off in the morning and you have something that you don't want to do that's facing you, something unpleasant, versus something extremely exciting, pleasant for you to do. I remember what it was like uh, in college. I remember one specific morning, uh, for some reason my classes lined up to have three finals on the same day. And I remember, just like it was yesterday, the alarm clock going off and praying for the rapture. I just wanted to be somewhere else right then. And I just remember thinking, what would it be like if I could just roll over and escape back into the oblivious sleep? I also remember November 5th, that famous November 5th in my own life when I woke up way before dawn and I knew that that day I was going to marry Kim I woke up at 3 and then 4 and then 4.15 and then 4.20 and then 5 and the clock wouldn't move fast enough to get that day going everybody understands that parents is it easier to get your kids up for school or Christmas has anyone ever tried to wake a kid up on Christmas Day and they say, catch me a lunch, I'm okay. Open the presents, do it without me. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna sleep and I'm so tired. The Apostle Paul understood that dynamic. He, he understood that. He understood what it meant to long to stay asleep and to have to get up and to be awakened. So in this passage, he uses the illustration of our need to wake up as a picture of our need to get ready for the Lord Jesus' return. Now, I want us to begin this morning by letting me state a couple of facts, okay? Some truths. First of all, it's a truth that the Bible repeats often and over and over, repeatedly teaches. It's a truth that our church holds as a primary doctrine to which we preach and discuss in evangelism. It's a truth that I believe with all my heart, but it's a truth that has been denied since the very first generation of believers in Jesus of Nazareth. Here's the truth. Ready? Jesus Christ was not only executed on a cruel Roman cross, He was not only confirmed to be dead, how dead? He was buried, he was buried dead. And he came back to life on the third day after the crucifixion. Not only was he resurrected from the dead, he remains alive to this day. He sits right now at the right hand of God praying for believers. And all that leads to this truth. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, is going to return to this earth physically, in bodily form, to save, to judge, and to reign. When he returns, he will then be confessed by every knee, bowing, and every tongue confessing, that he is the Lord. Let me say it this way. There is nothing, I know we have a lot, of, a lot of people who love prophecy in our church and so do I. I don't know what you've read. I don't know which conferences you've attended. I don't know how many TBN shows you've watched or how many Hal Lindsey books you've read. But listen, there is nothing, nothing left on the prophetic calendar that precedes his return. We're not waiting on anything to happen. And that's been the case since the first generation. Paul said, look for his coming. Don't wait for this to happen and that to happen. He says he may return today. If you believe that you're Waiting on something biblically to happen before you can look forward to Christ's return, then you're really making Paul out to be a liar. Because he said Jesus was ready to return in his generation. The passage before us points us to the reality of Christ's return. And it prepares us for the reality of Christ's return. Now, before we get started in the passage, I want us to do a little work with Peter concerning the return of the Lord because Peter and Paul say parallel things and this is important to understand the context in which we find ourselves with so many people doubting and mocking the return of the Lord. Turn over to 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, Hebrews, James, James. 1 Peter, 2 Peter, chapter 3. I want to read a bulk of this passage. Can I just tell you right now, you you need to have the the spines of your Bibles oiled up a little bit this morning. We're going to do a little bit of broad spade work before we drill down exactly into what Paul is instructing us. It's really important to get some background. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this, Peter, Peter says, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come. And they'll come mocking as they come, with their mocking. Following after their own lusts, and this is what they'll say. Where is the promise of his coming? Jesus said he was coming. That was a couple of millennia ago. Is he really going to come? Did he forget? Could he come back at all? Did he die? They go on. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now remember, this is in the first generation of believers saying this. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice, Peter says. That by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Talking about Genesis 6 through 9, the flood. But by his word, the present heavens where we live now and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction for ungodly man. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. This is important. Peter says, I know that some of you in the church, he says, listen, I know, beloved, he's talking to believers, I know that some of you are going to be tempted by others who say, it's been a couple of thousand years, is he really going to come? So he's going to help us by looking at God's daytimer, looking at God's calculus, and how he observes time. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day, ha, like a thousand years. A thousand years, just like one day. What does that tell us? God doesn't look at time the same way that you and I look at time. There's a good reason for that. If you could look at time as as a beginning and a consummation and ending point, God is outside of time, listen, seeing all of it at one time. So he sees the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He sees the whole thing. So for him, a day, a year, a millennia, it's all the same. He sees it always in the present tense. Now if you want me to go any farther than that, I, I, I can't explain more than that. The Lord, verse 9, is not slow about his promise. That's what the mockers were saying. Ha, he's slow. He isn't coming. He hasn't come. As some count slowness, that means our way of looking at time is not God's way of looking at time. But he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He has purposed not to come back today or yesterday, today so far, or yesterday, to give the world an opportunity to receive his son as Savior. What a gracious and loving God. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of, the, of which the heavens will be consumed, destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which the righteous will dwell. And righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, since you look for these things, I just have to stop and say, do I, do you look for these things? Are you anticipating these things? Be diligent to be found by him in peace. Spotless and blameless. In regard to the patience. and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just also as our beloved brother Paul. According to the wisdom given when he wrote to you. Now listen to this. As also in his letters. Speaking in terms of these things. In which... <laughs> are some things hard to understand. Is that encouraging to you? That Peter said, you know, Paul needs a little extra study. Which the untaught and unstable distort as they do all the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, you beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Here's what we learn from Peter. People would doubt and even mock the Christian's confidence that Jesus would return, holding to what's called a uniformitarianism. It's all, it'll just keep going like it's gone, nothing new. Have you met people like that? That's the day in which we're living. Peter also says that God is planning to judge the world with fire similar to the way that he judged the world with a flood, but he won't do it by a flood again. Why? He said he wouldn't. God sees time differently than we do. What we think is a long time is not a long time to him. And what we think is a short time is eternally etched in his memory. His delay in returning is for evangelistic purposes. His return will come unexpectedly. What Paul taught about the second coming, Peter says, is not impossible, but it's hard to understand, meaning it takes a little extra work. He's not saying it's impossible. You just got to work at it. And we should consider the Lord's return and live in a way that prepares us to meet him without shame. That sounds almost identical. Now back to Romans 13 to what Paul is going to say in these verses. While you're turning back to Romans 13, John adds to this, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. In other words, be ready. Wake up to the reality. Now, with that, we look at the end of Romans 13. Paul basically says we're standing in line for eternity. Have you ever stood along in line at a theme park? And you stand in line and you think this is taking forever. And then for some inexplicable reason, it starts moving really fast a picture of what's going on. We've we've waited and waited but when the time comes it's going to happen. Rapid fire without warning. So Paul informs us in this passage to wake up for and then be prepared for the coming, the return of the Lord. The language he uses is of a wake up call. An alarm used to wake someone up from deep, comfortable Sleep. Now, as we follow through on this passage this week and at least next week, I'm going to show you, discover with you two urgent responses to God's wake-up call. Two urgent responses to God's wake-up call. And let me just tell you, we're only going to get to the first one today. The first uh, urgent response to God's wake-up call is this. Number one, wake up to immediate awareness of Christ's return wake up to immediate instantaneous awareness of Christ's return verse 11 do this do what do what the new American standard says do this the Greek instruction of this phrase literally reads, and this, kai tauto. It's really basic, simple grammar in, uh, in Greek. And this. Now, it's interesting. It becomes a command and imperative. He's basically saying, I've said something, and now this. Now do something. Just for observation, the... NIV, the New American Standard, the New King James all say, do this. They take it as an imperative. And for some unknown reason, by the way, and I'm trying to figure out why the translators of the ESV uh, say something like this. That They say, besides this. And it's not besides, he's not separating. He's saying, and now this, do this. Do what? Do what? Do this knowing that the time is already around us. It's already here. The hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than we believe. The night is almost gone and the day is near. We're just going to look at that part this morning. Let's ask a simple question as we dig into these verses. Why do we think this paragraph is about the return of Christ? It doesn't say anything about the return of Christ... It talks about the hour to awaken, salvation being near. The night is almost gone, the day is near. Why would we take that as the return of Christ? That's a good question. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us, because he uses this exact language, listen, to say the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Which is interesting, Paul says, you have studied and you understand the coming of Christ and what's, what's ahead. You, you know what's next on God's timetable. For the trumpets to, to sound. And Jesus to return. Take his people to be with him. For you yourselves know full. That when the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety. I just heard that. On the news yesterday, peace and safety, pursuing it, peace and safety, that the world will be cured by peace and safety. While they're saying that, then destruction will suddenly come upon them, like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in, here, listen, here's, darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. In other words, you're not asleep in, in in your ignorance. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For so those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a, and helmet as a hope of salvation. It's night and day and putting on armor. Our passage talks about night and day and putting on armor. It's about the end of all time and the coming of the Lord. Let's break it down now. Do this. Do, do what? Now you could be tempted to say the immediate context is love one another. Um, love others. Express love. That's the immediate context that we studied last time. And it certainly includes that. But when he says do this, it marks a significant grammatical change in the passage. I think he's saying this goes all the way back to chapter 12, verses 1, all the way through 13, 10. Predominantly saying, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind into the image of Christ. And then he explains over the next chapter and a half how to do that. He says do this, Conformed to the image of Christ, refuse to be conformed to the image of the world. Do this, knowing something. Knowing something. Scholar Tom Schreiner agrees. He says the first part of this verse can be paraphrased: Put into practice all of the exhortations in Romans twelve one through thirteen ten in light of the imminence of the end. End quote. Do this. Be sanctified. Avoid being conformed to the world. Pursue being conformed to the image of Christ. And then our word we keep coming back to in Romans over and over the participle knowing. He expects us to know something. He doesn't say find out, he says do this knowing. With something in your mind, something in your memory, something fresh. Paul expects that the believer has an awareness of God's itinerary. He expects that we know how God's watch reads, which is, I'm coming back soon. There's a push in contemporary evangelical circles to minimize and even to ignore eschatology. Eschatology is a big word that looks at the Greek eschaton, the end. It's it's a word that means end times. Study the end times. That's the doctrine of, of the end times. Eschatology. So many ignore it, overlook it, minimize its importance. They minimize the doctrine of God's timetable at the end of time. Some would say you can't know it. It's impossible. I read one commentary that said... The book of Revelation was written with a key, a code. But the code book to interpret Revelation was lost, so we have no hope of understanding what it means. As if God is up there wringing his hands saying, I wish they hadn't lost the code book. This gets at what we call the perspicuity, the clearness, the clarity of scripture. Revelation isn't hard to understand as much as it is hard to believe. People ignore it. It's thought by some that the book of Revelation presents so many interpretive challenges that we should look the other way and ignore it, and ignore the passages that describe the way God will bring the world to a climatic end. The explanation that follows here in Romans chapter 13 uses the illustration of getting up from sleep because you know there's something for which to wake up. (laughs) Again, Paul expects by saying knowing, knowing the time, he expects that we know what time it is on God's clock. What time is it on God's clock? It's time for the return of the Lord. You say, well, it hasn't happened in 2,000 years. That's a long time. What did we just hear Peter say? Not very long, actually. Not long at all. It's a blink in God's eye in eternity. Now, the rest of verse 11 and the first part of 12 are going to tell us what to wake up for. And that's what we're going to focus our time on now. That, knowing that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. I'm not going to say, have you ever? Ever? but you know what it's like to need to get up for something. And let's say that you need to be someplace at 7. You set your alarm for 6. You have no memory of the alarm going off because maybe you set it for 7 p.m., but that's another whole problem. And for some unknown reason, you roll over and look at the clock and it says 7.05. And you're supposed to be... Everyone ever had that happen? You wicked sinners, I can't believe. I have that happen. Paul is saying huh, it's time for you to be awake. And if you are asleep, this is not something for which you ought to oversleep. The hour's time to awaken from sleep. Now, I'm not going to press too much into what sleep means here, except to say in a few minutes, he's going to talk about the deeds of darkness. And basically, sleep references your former manner of sin and living in sin. He'll talk about that in the coming few verses. Told the Thessalonians the exact same thing. Time to wake up. Time to wake up from your former pattern of living and be aware and ready for the Lord's return. Why? Well, this is interesting. He says because salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. How? If you're a believer, if you're saved in the the, uh, biblical description... Isn't it interesting that he says to save people here in Rome, these Italians, he says, your salvation is near. What should make you raise your hand and say, which salvation? Because I thought I was already, I thought I was saved already. He's not talking about justification, being made right with God, which he did in, in Romans 1 through 8. He's talking about glorification, the final salvation that Romans 8 hints at is almost here. It's near. That day is near. How do we know that he's not talking about getting saved? Because it says so right in verse 11. It's nearer than when we believed. That's when we became Christians. Salvation, our final salvation, is nearer now than when we believed. Here's a thought. I'm not trying to overstate the obvious but just bask your mind for a moment in this thought we sitting here this morning are closer to the return of Jesus than anyone who's ever lived on this planet we are nearer to his return than Paul was than Luther and Calvin were, than the English reformers, than anyone you know who has passed. You are closer to the return of Christ than it's ever been. Paul now uses a familiar metaphor for the closing of this age and the coming of the Lord. It's the passing from night to Today, he, Peter did the same thing. Paul does the same thing. Verse 12. The night, the time of sin, the time of this world, almost gone. The hourglass is over in God's hand and the sand is almost at the end. Passing of night today. Six years earlier, by the way, when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians... He told them, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Paul was very aware that the church was entering an extremely persecuting, difficult time. The Roman Empire was about to attack Christianity. He was preparing the believers for this troublesome time and saying, listen, as bad as it is, the night is almost over just as a practical pastoral aside from Paul some of you are here this morning with with extreme burdens could be financial, could be relational could be school, could be business and it's easy for us when we're all in those seasons, when those times to think I I can't see beyond this I'm up against the wall and I can't see how high it is. And there's no ladder to get over it. I am I'm in a spiritual cul-de-sac. Imagine having a worship service and waiting for a knock on the door and when it knocks, not knowing if that was someone who's going to join you in worship or is a Roman guard who's going to take you outside your home and execute you on the spot. They lived in this kind of anxiety. And Paul says, the night is almost over. What he's saying is whatever you're experiencing now, there is a better day coming. The the Lord Jesus is coming. It's not always going to be like this. Should remind us of what other New Testament writers wrote about being aware of the return of the Lord, of the day coming and the night passing. Can I give you a very quick guided tour? You can try to follow me if you want to, but I'm going to flip to a bunch of passages really fast. Very quick guided tour so you know that the idea that Jesus is returning was not just a Pauline or a Petrine doctrine. It wasn't just as occasionally talked about. It dominated their mind. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 1.9 They themselves report to us about what kind of reception we have with you. How you turn from idols to serve a living true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Are you waiting? Do you find yourself waiting in line for eternity? Are you waiting for his return? We read 1 Thessalonians 5 earlier. The night is almost gone. The day is almost here. People are crying peace and safety. But destruction is imminent. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul be preserved, complete, without blame, at the coming of the Lord Jesus. James 5.7 Be patient therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Titus 2:11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to un- deny ungodliness and, un- and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. What about Jesus himself? Matthew 24, 42. Be on the alert, he said, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Mark 8, 38. Whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus said in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Luke 21, 28. But when these things begin to take place, signs of the end of the time. Straighten up, lift your heads because your redemption is drawing nearer. You're going to be finally glorified and saved. Revelation 1.7 Behold, He is coming in the clouds. Remember what we read a couple weeks back on Easter in Acts one. Jesus ascends into heaven, and these people are looking into heaven. He disappears in the cloud, and an angel shows up beside him and says, Why are you guys looking up there? But know this the way he went up is the way he is going to what? Come back. Revelation 1 7 He's coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, the Jews. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, Jesus said, "I am coming quickly." When is the last time? Maybe I should say, "Have you ever taken a few quiet, sober-minded moments?" looked out the window looked up at the sky anticipating that Jesus is going to come back peter says you got to you got to do this because mockers are going to come What a great evangelistic tool. Go to the park and just stare up. Just look at the sky. And when people come and say, what are you looking for? Just say, I'm waiting for the Lord to return. Who is that? And then you're in. Just try that sometime. Let me add a few application points to this. we get into the specific application next week if you read ahead in Romans Chapter 13, you see he gets into moral preparedness. First, can I ask you to please resist any attempt to think that you somehow know more than the apostles did about the timing of the Lord's return? I've heard so many speculations... It will be during the Passover season. It will happen during a year of Jubilee. It must happen after such and such Old Testament festival. On and on and on, you're wrong. Because if you say you know, you don't. (laughs) I looked up, uh, by the way, uh, (laughs) I don't often do this. And I don't often quote Wikipedia in the pulpit. But I did look up an article this week, predictions, you can look this up, predictions and claims for the second coming of Christ. And it goes over dozens of people who predicted when Christ was going to come. All of those dates, by the way, are in the past. And he hasn't yet. Jesus gave specific instructions on how to view his return in Mark chapter 13. Just listen, Mark 13, 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Talking about the end. But of that day or hour, no one knows. I just, I, I try not to laugh at these people who say, well, I've figured it out. This, if, you, if you go this these four Old Testament passages, you collate them with the... The New Testament, you did, and you put it in this calculation, you spit it out, and it's probably going to be in September of 2019. I've had people say that. Harold Camping made a life of saying it's going to, and then when it didn't, the next, and then it didn't, and they just kept changing the predictions. Pretty convenient. No one knows. When is the Lord going to return? You know what Jesus said? No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, he said. Nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, I'm going to confess, this was during Jesus' time on the earth, in his glorified uh, condition and state, sitting with the Father. Does he know now? I don't Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But this time, he says, I don't even know the day. So these people who think they've got it figured out, just humble yourself and say, no, I don't. Take heed, be on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. There it is. Since you don't know, always be ready. Here's what we know. We're nearer than we've ever been. We're nearer than anyone else has ever been to the return of Christ. We're nearer than anyone who's ever lived. The people alive today are the closest who've ever been to the return of Jesus. We also know, as we'll see next week, we should respond in holiness and moral preparedness. And we are not to speculate when, but to be ready for now. You know what happens when you say that you think you know when the Lord's going to return? You neglect the sanctifying thought that he may come back today. So these people who say, oh, he's coming in September of 2019, that takes away the whole thrust of these passages that say, be ready now, he might come today. And how much should we be aware of telling people that the Lord Jesus is coming back to rule and to reign and to judge. We have the life-saving message of the good news of Christ. This should make us, you see what we use, the word, two urgent responses. This first one is urgent. The second one is urgent. Are you aware that Christ could return Today, Can I ask you another question? Do you want him to? Well, not until I get married. Well, then you don't understand the glory of Christ. Well, not until I have kids that you don't understand the greatness of Jesus. Well, not until I, not until. There is no not until. Well, look, next week, Paul says, learn to pray this. Maranatha. What does Maranatha mean? Come, Lord, when? Quickly. The thought of the return of Christ should frighten you to the point of terrified fear if you don't know him. Or the thought of Christ's return should get you pretty excited today. That the night's almost gone and the day is almost here. Paul told them what to wake up for, an awareness that Jesus is coming, that the end is, is near. And next, next week he'll tell us how wake up and from what to wake up. (coughs) Make sure (coughs) this week, make sure today that you let your mind drift (coughs) toward anticipation. It may come this day. It may come before we finish. And that ought to be an invited glorious thought.